0: This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we talk to David Graeber. He's the internationally best-selling author of Death the First 5,000 Years, about his brand-new and always provocative book, Bullshit Jobs, A Theory. This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm very pleased to have David Graeber here for the first time. From Adbusters to Occupy to The History of Debt, that's Debt, The First 5,000 Years, and The Utopia of Rules, as well as books like The Democracy Project and Direct Action and Ethnography. David Graeber, who's a professor of anthropology at the London School of Economics, has surprised and illuminated us with his creative and provocative thinking. And now he takes on the biggest shibboleth of all our very work. And that means our very lives. The book is Bullshit Jobs, a Theory, and it's just now published by Simon & Schuster. And in it, Graber points at a lot of things, including something dear to my heart or something that is iniquitous, and that is the ubiquitous administrative layer that just keeps growing. And as David will explain to us, the many jobs that are essentially pointless. And the book is filled with great anecdotes. You're going to want to read it. It is Welcome to Jacobin Radio.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So let's just get right down to it. What is the definition of a bullshit job?
1: Okay. A bullshit job is a job which is so pointless or even pernicious that even the person doing the job secretly believes that it shouldn't exist. Of course, you have to pretend And that's also part of the definition. You know, that's the bullshit element, actually, that you kind of have to pretend there's a reason for this job to be here. But secretly, you think if this job didn't exist, either it would make no difference whatsoever or the world would actually be a slightly better place.
0: And, of course, in the development of this book, you you start out by distinguishing the bullshit jobs from the shit jobs. Maybe we should. Start doing that right now so we can then talk about what the bullshit jobs are.
1: Yeah. Uh, People often make this mistake, you know, that when, when you talk about bullshit jobs, they just think jobs that are bad, jobs that are demeaning, jobs that have terrible conditions, no benefits, so forth and so on. But actually, the irony is those jobs usually aren't bullshit. You know, if you have a bad job, chances are that it's actually doing some good in the world. In fact, the more your work benefits other people, the less they're likely to pay you, and the more likely it is to be a shit job in that in that sense. So, you know, whether you could almost see it as an opposition. On the one hand, you have the jobs that are shit jobs, but actually are useful. You know, if you're cleaning toilets or something like that, toilets do need to be cleaned. Um, so at least you have the, you know the, the dignity of knowing that you're doing something which is benefiting other people, even if you don't get much else. And on the other hand, you have jobs where you're treated with dignity and respect, you get good payment, you get good benefits, but you secretly labor under the knowledge that your job work is entirely useless.
0: And actually, you go into some of the overlap between them and maybe, and we'll come back to that, even in the toilet cleaning jobs, because one could argue that would be a great job to automate, you know, well, yes. automate <laughs> successfully. You know. But in any case, you go into your book and you really divide your chapters. It's really well organized Thank and you. into yes. the kinds of bullshit jobs. And mm. I think you can go through them, but there's flunkies and goons and yeah. duck. Papers and box tickers and task makers and what I think of as bean counters, right? Yeah. (laughs) You know, those keeping track of what others consume. But maybe we could go through just as quickly as possible what these categories are.
1: Sure, Um, This came from actually my own work sort of asking people to send me testimonies. I assembled several hundred testimonies from people – who had bullshit jobs. I asked people, you know, what's your most pointless job you ever had? Tell me all about it. How do you think it happened? What's the dynamics? Did your boss know? You know, so so I got that kind of information. I kind of did a lot of crom, little interviews with people afterwards, follow-up stuff. And so in a way, we kind of came up with the category systems together. People would suggest different ideas to me. And Gradually, it kind of came together into five categories. And as you say, we have, first of all, the flunkies. That's kind of self-evident. A flunky exists only to make someone else look good <laughs> and, or feel good about themselves in some cases. And we, could, we all know what kind of jobs they are. But an obvious example would be, say, um, a receptionist at a place that doesn't actually need a receptionist. Now, some places obviously do need receptionists. or are busy all the time. Some places the phone rings maybe once a day. But you still have to have someone, sometimes two people sitting there, you know, sort of looking important, cold callers for, you know, so so I don't have to call somebody on the phone. I'll have someone who will just say, there is a very important broker who wants to speak to you. You know, that's a flunky. A goon is a little more subtle. But I kind of had to make this category because people kept telling me that they felt that if they were a telemarketer, if they were a corporate lawyer, if they were in PR, marketing, things like that, they felt that their jobs were bullshit. So I had to sort of come to terms with why it was they felt that way. And the pattern seemed to be that these are jobs that actually are useful in many cases to the company they work for, but they felt the entire industry shouldn't exist. And they're basically people there to annoy you, to push you around in some way. And insofar as it's necessary, it's only necessary because other people have them. Uh, So you don't need a corporate lawyer if your competitor doesn't have a corporate lawyer. You don't need a telemarketer at all, but you know, if, in insofar as you can make up an excuse where you can say you need them, it's because the other guy's got one. All right. So that's easy enough. Duct tapers are people who are there to solve problems that shouldn't exist in the first place. And, you know, an obvious example of that would be someone who like my old university we only seemed to have one carpenter. and It was really hard to get him.
0: Oh, I love that example. Yeah, <laughs> Go right. ahead. Do it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's this point where the shelf collapsed in my office at the university I was working at in England. And the carpenter was supposed to come and, you know, there was a huge hole in the wall. Look at the damage. And he never seemed to show up. He always had something else to do. And we finally figured out there was this one guy sitting there all day apologizing for the fact that the carpenter never came. He was very good at the job. He was a very likable fellow. He always seemed a little sad and melancholy. And, you know, it was very hard to get angry at him, which is, of course, what his job was, you know, to be a flat catcher, effectively. But, you know, at one point I thought, you know, if they fired that guy and hired another carpenter, they wouldn't need it, right? So that 's a classic example of a duct taper.
0: but you also gave <laughs> another example of say a company that decided to buy the cheapest software on the oldest oh, God, computers yeah. and then <laughs> so they 't
1: work yeah. and then <laughs> they
0: had to hire somebody. To basically answer questions about software that shouldn't have been bought in the first place, right? Was that is that kind of... Right.
1: Basically, there's a conflict in the company about whether they even wanted to have an interface. You know. Yes. But, and, and finally, one guy insisted. It got a really bad one. And then they hired this guy who had no computer experience. He was fresh out of college with a literature degree. Perfect. and Yeah. And his job was to answer the phone when people were saying, I don't understand why this doesn't work. And he was like, well, I don't really know either.
0: So we all know, I guess, a couple of examples of duct tapers. And yes. then...
1: The box tickers. Box tickers are there to allow an organization to say it is doing something which it isn't actually doing. You know, it was sort of like a commission of inquiry. If the government, you know, it gets embarrassed by some scandal, say they're shooting a lot of black citizens, cops are shooting a lot of uh, citizens, or you know, there's somebody taking bribes, or some kind of scandal, you form a commission of inquiry and they pretend they didn't know it was happening. They pretend they're going to do something about it, which I, you know, you know is. Both completely untrue, but companies do that too. You know, they'll always be creating committees, compliance. Um, banks have like I think there's like hundreds of thousands of people around the world who work in in compliance in banks, and it's, it's complete bullshit. I mean, no nobody ever actually has any intention of following any of these laws that are imposed on them. So your job is just simply to approve every transaction. But, of course, it's not enough to approve every transaction because that looks suspicious. So you have to make up reasons to say or some things you looked into. So there's very elaborate rituals of pretending to like look into a problem which you're not actually looking into at all.
0: Then you go into the taskmasters. The
1: taskmasters, yeah. They're the people who are there to give people work that isn't necessary or to supervise people who don't need supervision. And we all know what we're talking about It's mm-hmm. like middle management is, of course, a classic example of that. And I got people who would just tell me flat out, oh, yeah, I got a bullshit job. I'm middle management. I got promoted. I used to actually do the job. And they put me upstairs and they said, supervise people, make them do the job. And I know perfectly well they don't need somebody to supervise them or to make them do it. But I have to come up with some excuse to exist anyway. So eventually you often, uh, in a situation like that, say, all right, well, we're going to come up with target statistics so I can prove that you're actually doing what I already know that you're doing, so I can imply that I was the guy who made you do that. Uh, so, in fact, you have people fill out all these forms. And so, in fact, they're spending less of their time doing work. And and this happens, actually, increasingly across the um, across the world. But in America, someone actually did some statistical study and discovered that You think something like 39% of the average time a office worker is supposed to be working, they're actually working at their job. Increasingly, it's, um, you know, administrative emails, pointless meetings. Um, all sorts of form filling out and you know paperwork basically.
0: And we're both in the university sector, and we know. Oh yeah, the, and there's a, and this actually started in Britain, but it's really taken hold here. I teach in a small liberal arts college, and this mm-hmm. layer of administration, the bloat, of course, is creating a financial. Crisis, but yes. on the other mm-hmm. hand, mm-hmm. I keep telling fellow faculty members who tell me, well, some of them work really hard and, you know, do things that we don't. And I say, but did you ever notice the more administrators they hire, the more admin we have to do? Exactly,
1: And, that, exactly. and then,
0: you know, mm-hmm. and you think about we're supposed to be teaching and researching and writing, but we barely get time to do that anymore because we have to fill out all these evaluations yeah. and
1: justify mm-hmm. what we're doing. They try to give me these, these time allocation surveys. Um, and they never used to. This is like a new thing, and I was actually going through the time allocations every night. I refused to do it when I realized that reading and writing books is not on the list of you know sort of things that count as your job. Right. <laughs> there are Thirty-seven different types of administrative things that you can write down you know. Oh my god. And. and how does this happen? I can tell you exactly how it's happened. This kind of managerial model where a university is supposed to resemble a corporation. If you yeah. hire high-level managers, the first thing you got to do, you know, I'm, I'm the new vice provost or something like that. They've got to give them three, four, five different flunkies just to make them feel important, Right. So they give them these guys, but only then do they figure out, what am I going to do with them? So those guys turn into the taskmasters who will sort of like sit around and come, oh, I know. We'll we'll have people write the learning outcomes of the different graduates. How do you assess learning? Well, here's all these
0: different ways. Right. And then we even in my school even Mm -hmm. had a huge argument because they wanted to hire not a dean but like a vice president of assessment. But they ended up doing a dean. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, exactly. We know when
0: learning takes place. Place. And,
1: and as a result – and actually, I had a general theory of this. I'm, I'm quite proud of it. I presented it at the Bank of England at a macroeconomic seminar. something I called the uh, macroeconomic consequences of useless employment (laughs) um, I'm very proud of this Uh,
0: okay I'm speaking with David Graeber I'm Susie Wiseman. you're listening to Jacobin Radio David Graeber has a very interesting new book just came out on May 15th it's called Bullshit Jobs a Theory published by Simon and Schuster and so okay let's keep going David this is a lot of fun but going through all of these categories and thinking about it you know there's a history behind all of them and the other side is that in in sort of radical or Marxist thought there's this notion of productive and unproductive yes. labor so I wonder how the bullshit job category connects to the notion of unproductive labor it's or different. jobs
1: it's different because you know productive and unproductive labor is whether it is producing surplus value for capitalism and that's a rather different question. This is a subjective assessment of the social value of work by the people doing it. And what it shows is that capitalism isn't a totalizing system in that, you know, everybody's thinking in terms of the system. In fact, people are thinking both in terms of the system and in completely contradictory terms at the same time. That's what causes this incredible moral confusion of people in these jobs. Because on the one hand people do kind of accept the idea that the market determines value. That's um, and that's true in most countries, actually. Now you know, you almost never hear from people in retail or you know services saying, "Oh, you know, I sell selfie sticks. Why do people want selfie sticks? That's stupid. You know, people are dumb. <laughs> you know, they don't say that. You know, they don't say, um, you know, why do you need to spend five bucks on a cup of coffee anyway? You know, so people in service jobs, they don't, they don't think they have bullshit jobs, almost in uh, almost no cases. So. They accept that if there's a market for something, people want it, who am I to judge? So they buy along the logic of capitalism to that degree. However, then they look at the market in labor and they say, wait a minute, I'm being paid $40,000 a year to sit and make cat memes all day and maybe take a phone call. <laughs> that can't be right. So so the market isn't always right. I mean, clearly the market in labor does not work in an economically rational way. So there's a contradiction. They have to come up with another system tacit system of value, which is very, very different than productive and unproductive for capitalism.
0: And then how does the rise of these jobs that Mm. you're calling bullshit jobs relate to the huge rise of joblessness in Mm. the economy? And, and, you know, and I guess we're in the last decade or so, you do start to go into that in some kind of way as, as a history. And you also talk about what has happened to what we think of as productive jobs.
1: Yes. Well, this is very interesting. I mean, we have this narrative of the rise of the service economy. since the 80s, we've been moving away from manufacturing. And the way they present it in economic statistics, it does seem that, you know, farm labor has largely disappeared, industrial labor has gone down, not quite as much as people seem to think it has, but it has. And, you know, service through the roof. But that also is because they break down service to include clerical, managerial, supervisory, administrative jobs. If you differentiate them, and I've seen one diagram, which I thought was very telling, because they essentially took information tech, um, workers and service workers and divided them up. You know, So if you look at service in that sense of people who actually are giving you a haircut or serving you food, well, actually, service has remained pretty much flat at 20 percent of the workforce for the last 150 years. It hasn't changed at all. Wow. Yeah. Uh, what's really changed is a gigantic explosion of these paper pusher guys. And that's, of course, the bullshit job sector.
0: Right. And you call that the bureaucracy, the administrative yeah. sector, the middle management sector.
1: Exactly. And it's a sector where public and private kind of fuse together. In fact, one area for the massive proliferation of these jobs is, is exactly where it's kind of unclear what's public and what's private, the interface, where they privatize public services, where they – the government sort of backing up, backstopping banks, banking section is insane. There's this one yeah. guy who uh, I start the book with actually, I call him Kurt, I don't actually know his real name. He works for a subcontractor to a subcontractor to a subcontractor wow. to the German military. And basically, you know, there's a German soldier who wants to move his, his computer from one office to another. He has to make a request to someone who calls somebody, calls someone This goes through three different companies. Finally, he has to drive, you know, 500 kilometers in a rented car, fill out the forms, put it in a package, move it. Somebody else unpacks it and he signs another form and leaves. And this is like the most inefficient system you could possibly possibly imagine. But it's all created by this interface between this sort of public private stuff, which is supposed to make things more efficient.
0: And I want to go into that a little bit more, but you also talk about the growth of the fire sector and finance, and I wondered mm-hmm. how that relates to the rise of bullshit jobs, because as you, you've you stated that just now, David yep. Graeber, that mm-hmm. the service sector jobs have more or less remained the same in the last 150 years. Mm-hmm. But there has been this rise of this other uh, layer, and I think in the beginning of your book, you state the results of the surveys that Mm -hmm. show that people that up to 37 or 40 percent of people think that they are employed in Mm -hmm. bullshit jobs. So so how did this happen and how does it relate to the rise of finance? And I should just say, because we usually Mm. think of finance as devouring and plundering. And here Mm -hmm. we have, you know, the creation of this layer.
1: Well, well, I mean, when you plunder, you have to give away the loot in such a way to gain political support and retainers. I mean, if you are a feudal lord who's just looted someplace, the first thing you do is give some to flunkies. I mean, and essentially that's pretty much what's happening here. I mean, it's not that it's not wrong. In a way, you know, when I learned my basic, you know, sort of Marxism 101 back when I was an undergraduate, <laughs> I learned that that capitalism is based on exploitation through the wage. You know, you pay people half the value of what they produce. And feudalism was based on direct geopolitical extraction. Well, that's what finance is. It's direct juropolitical extraction. I actually spent some time once trying to ask every economist I met – how much does the average American household pay out to the fire sector every month? How much of their income? and Nobody knew these statistics are not available almost anything else you can possibly think of. the Federal Reserve keeps statistics on but this one you couldn 't find and I heard estimates at everywhere from fifteen percent to fifty percent. You know nobody really knows. I think Michael Hudson thought it was fifty percent and yeah, so you know they 're just taking money it's, it' It is loot and it 's done through you know if you create debt you're you're colluding with the government you know in a million different ways and it's ultimately the government that enforces this thing so that's why the public and private sector have kind of fused together because the mode of extraction under finance capital is public private it's both
0: it's exactly yeah. mm-hmm. right. And it's, you know, this is so interesting because you talked about, you know, how it's more like feudalism. Of course, mm-hmm. Robert Brenner was saying in, a, in one of his uh, talks that we're no longer in the transition from feudalism to capitalism, but capitalism back to feudalism yeah. Yeah. because of the political imperative. And you say it extremely well okay. in your book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you say that the laws of motion, as the Marxists like to say, are profoundly mm-hmm. different from capitalism since economic and political imperatives have come. ...to largely merge. In many ways, it resembles classical medieval feudalism, displaying the same tendency to create endless hierarchies of lords, vassals, and retainers. And then in other ways, notably in its managerialist ethos, it is profoundly different. And then you talk about the whole apparatus that that is employed on top of this, and I think this is really important to describe the present that we live in. Okay, so then... You were talking a little bit about the merging in public Mm. and private, and I was thinking, as you you said, how do you calculate the cost of the fire sector? Mm. There's so much of the ethos, as you point out, from the Thatcher-Reagan days is that government's always the problem and government's where all of these jobs are. So it was an attack on the public sector, and whereas you show that a lot of this comes from the private sector, this bureaucratization – But the question, I guess, is doesn't the pressure to maximize profits and cut costs, which is what we think of in terms of capitalism and under the stress of competition in that private sector, militate against the creation of these pointless jobs?
1: You'd think it would. But I mean, part of the reason why it doesn't happen is because when we imagine capitalism, we're still imagining a bunch of sort of mid-sized firms engaged in manufacturing and commerce and in competition with each other. It's not really what the landscape looks like nowadays, especially in the fire sector. And I think that also, if you look at what people actually do, yeah, there's this whole ideology of lean and mean. And if you're a CEO, you get praised for how many people you can fire and downsize and speed up. But the guys who are being downsized and sped up are the blue-collar workers, the productive ones, the guys who are actually making things, moving them around, maintaining them, doing actual work. So, you know, if, if I'm UPS, you know, like the drivers are, are getting tailorized all the time. However, you don't do that to the guys in the offices. It's exactly the opposite happens. Within the corporation, there's this whole thing process of empire building, whereby different managers are competing with each other like primarily over how many people they have working under them. So they have no incentive whatsoever to get rid of people. And a lot of it has to do with what happens to the profits. A lot of those profits are reinvested politically and just simply prestige. And if you listen to descriptions of what some of these jobs are in large corporations, it really does resemble the most silly, extreme forms of feudalism. You have these guys, you know, teams of people whose entire job is to write the reports that important executives sort of present at big meetings. And big meetings are kind of like the equivalent of Feudal jousts or the high rituals of the corporate world, and you walk in there and you've got all this gear and you got all this stuff and your PowerPoints and your your reports and so forth. So there's whole teams who are just there. to I do the cartoons and illustrations for this guy's reports, and I do the graphs and I tabulate the data and keep the database. And and you know nobody ever reads these reports. They're just like there to flash around. But you can have whole. So it's equivalent of having you know. I'm a feudal lord and I have some guy whose job is just to tweeze my mustache and another guy who's polishing my stirrups and so forth just to show that I can do that.
0: Well, it's also interesting, and I want to get to the sort of other side of it, the kind of jobs that you know you talk about in your book, the caring jobs. But before we get there, mm-hmm. you know, just on this public-private thing, because it was so successful to identify the public as the bureaucracy yeah. and the private as the efficiency sector, you're showing that that isn't the case with numerous anecdotes that mm-hmm. I really like. But you also then talk about the psychological effects of the kinds of jobs yes. people have – and uh, you mentioned, you know, the old Soviet bureaucracy. That's my field, uh, Soviet mm-hmm. politics. And and I know there, especially, you know, in, under the Stalinist system, that they – it was a very different system, first of all. It doesn't directly compare. Mm-hmm. But – there was this method of social control of keeping everybody enmeshed in a series of documents that defined their life. And so it was, you had to have a workbook, you had to have a residence permit, you had to have every kind of permit, and you always had to have it, and you had to always mm. make sure you had it. And it kept people so busy you know, trying to uh, make sure that their documents were in order and that they didn't have any contact with the secret police, that they couldn't even think about opposition in many mm. cases. And I know that this is not directly relevant, but you do talk about using yeah this is a method of social control.
1: Well, if you think about it, I mean, this is my previous book, Utopia of Rules. That I talk about this movies. a little bit. Yeah. We think that they had it bad for paperwork. We do way more paperwork than yeah. any society that's ever existed in human history. <laughs> I remember seeing somewhere statistics that the average American spends six months of their life waiting for the lights to change. Well, you know, I don't know how long we spend filling out forms, but I bet a lot. more than that. Yeah, probably a year.
0: And in the case it takes us back to your other point, too, when you were thinking about the costs of this sector. You know, I always thought, like, the fact that we have mandatory insurance, which is mm-hmm. we want it, but that's a private tax rather than a public tax in some ways in this mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. You know, so it is very difficult to calculate. In any case, you also see the parallel to the rise of the bullshit jobs, which are the rise of the non-bullshit jobs. And yes. you call them the caring or caregiving jobs. Yeah. And you talk about this in your book, which I should just say again, is called Bullshit Jobs, a Theory. Yeah. Can you describe mm-hmm. these jobs and why mm-hmm. is there a rise in those jobs and what sectors are they in?
1: Yeah. I'm taking the concept from largely from feminist theory, but I think it's very, very important. Because in the traditional notion of work, I think it's very much theological and patriarchal. We have this notion of production. So it comes with this notion that work is supposed to be painful. It's punishment of – you know, that God inflicted on us, but it's also an imitation of God, whether it's Prometheus or whether it's the Bible. You know, humans rebel against God and God says, oh, you want my power? Fine. You can create the world, but it's going to be miserable. You will <laughs> suffer when you're doing it. So You can be like me and create stuff, but like <laughs> have fun. Okay, so. But it's also seen as this quintessentially male business. So women have – give birth and men sort of produce things as the ideology. And, of course, it makes all the real work of that women do of maintaining the world invisible. So this notion of production, which lies really at the heart of 19th century theories, uh, the workers' movement of the labor theory of value, mm-hmm. is itself a little deceptive because you, know, you ask any Marxist about – Labor and labor value—they always, they always immediately go to production. You know, well, here's a cup. You know, somebody has to make the cup. Yeah, you know, it's true. But we we make a cup once and we wash it like ten thousand times, right? That labor just completely disappears. And in most of these accounts, most work isn't about producing things; it's about keeping them the same. It's about maintaining them. It's taking care of them, but also taking care of people, taking care of plants and animals. There was this wonderful example. Uh, there was a debate I remember in. London about whether tube workers, they were closing all these ticket offices um, in in the London Underground. And, you know, a lot of marketers say, well, you know, it's it's probably a bullshit job in a sense because you wouldn't really need ticket takers under, under full communism, transportably free. So maybe we shouldn't defend these jobs. And I remember thinking there was something rather sketchy there. And then I saw this document that's actually put out by the strikers where they said, well, you know, good luck in the New London Underground without, without anybody working in the tube station. Uh, let's just hope your child doesn't get lost. <laughs> let's just hope you don't lose your stuff. Let's just hope there aren't any accidents. Let's just hope that, you know, nobody, like, freaks out and has an anxiety attack or gets drunk and starts harassing you. And they just go through all the different things that you know, they actually do. And you realize that even, you know, a lot of these classic working class jobs are really caring labor. They're about taking yeah. care of people. But right. you don't think of it as that. You know, you don't realize it. They, you know, it's much more like a nurse than like a factory worker.
0: Right. But I think that this is exactly the direction to go in because, you know, okay. as we all know, Marx didn't leave a blueprint of what a socialist society mm-hmm. would look like. But those of us who think about it do think about it being a society of caregiving jobs yes. and including health and education and all of these other, you know, sectors that you talk about, getting rid of the the BS quotient within yeah. some of these jobs. And we want to
1: get rid of the jobs that are just mind-numbingly boring and, and do the jobs that actually involve human interaction and, and the jobs that you wouldn't want a robot to do. know, yeah. oh, Sure, I would want a robot to sort my fruit and make my, my iPhone, but I don't want a robot to take care of me when I'm sick. I mean, I'm sure they're saying they can do that, but I don't care. I'd rather have a person doing that. I want a robot to teach my kid. You know. well, I, I com- don't want a robot. To I
0: want to <laughs> come back to that in just a second. You know, when we Wrap up. But one of the things that you say in your book, David Graeber, is that you thought Occupy could be the start of the rebellion of the caring class. Yes. And so I want to know how Occupy fits in this rebellion, how you see it in the future in relationship to the caring sector, and whether or not you see this kind of revolt as an agency mm. of revolt, rather.
1: Yes. There are several points to be made there. Uh, I first got on to the when I was looking at the "We are the 99%" Tumblr page,
0: which is your slogan, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I came up with the 99% part. I saw other people came up with the "We" and the R. It was actually, you know, a slogan created by committee in a sense. But it was sometimes that works. This know? was a
0: useful committee, not a <laughs> yeah, non-useful one. Yeah, you um, see. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, you
1: know, even committees can come up with good stuff. All right. So, yeah. So there was this "We are the 99%" Tumblr page, and it was for people who. You know, we're too busy working to actually take part in the occupations on an ongoing basis. So the idea is you could, like, write a little sign where you talk about your life situation. It would always end, I am the 99%, why you support the movement. And it was, oh, we had a huge response. Thousands and thousands of people did this. And when I went through it, I realized that, you know, almost all of them were in the caring sector in some sense. And even if they weren't, the, the, the theme seemed to be very similar. They basically were saying... Look, I wanted a job where at least i wasn 't hurting anybody really where I was you know doing some sort of benefit for humanity. I wanted to help people in some way, I wanted to care for others, I wanted to benefit society. but you know if you end up in health or education, social services, you know doing something where you take care of other people, they will pay you so little and they will put you so right. deeply in debt you can 't even take care of your own family. This is like you know this is totally unfair. So it was that feeling of the fundamental injustice, which I think really drove the movement more than anything else. So in the case of bullshit jobs, I realized that, you know, as we were talking about, they create these dummy jobs. who are basically there to make executives feel good about themselves, but they have to make up work for for other people to do. So in education, you know, in health, this is incredibly marked. Um, you, You see it all the time. Nurses like often have to spend half their time filling out paperwork. Um, teachers, um, primary t- school teachers, uh, people like me, uh, it's not quite as bad in higher education as it is if you're teaching fifth grade, but it's, it's still bad. And and um, so how does that happen? Well, I think that's two things: the dynamic we just described, but it's also the effect of digitization. And. Um, basically you know if you take manufacturing on one side and caring work on the other and this again caring work is any work sort of directly on other people well you know what you see and i think this is really interesting is that you know if you robotize apply ai and so forth and so on to manufacturing yes it becomes much more productive productivity levels go up you need to employ less people profits go up as a result and um, and and there's what they call technological deflation, you know, the actual cost per quality of of, of what you're putting out, you know, the costs go down. Uh, so they're saying, you know, maybe a pho- an iPhone costs the same as it would have like you know ten years ago, but it's a way better iPhone for the <laughs> same amount of money. So in effect, there's technological deflation. Okay, but if you apply digitization, AI, computers to the caring sector. It has exactly the opposite effect. That is to say, you have to spend all your time translating qualitative experiences into forms that a computer can even recognize. Mm-hmm. Only humans can do that. And that's how you have the nurses filling up forms all day. You know, all these people trying to, like, what are the learning outcomes? You know, this is sort of nonsense. It's you the have same to <laughs> thing. Or going to a doctor's
0: appointment yeah. where they never look at you and are looking at the screen. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so the digitization. They didn't sign up for that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I actually, Found statistics. I I, I felt very vindicated. It's actually true. Productivity and, say, health and education, which are the areas where they keep uh, the best statistics, are are going down. So, if productivity levels going are going down and their demand is going up or staying the same, even you need to employ more people. So that's what's happening. In manufacturing, they're employing less and less people. in in health and education, they're employing more and more people. Productivity levels go down. There's a profit squeeze. So, um, oh, costs of course are going way up, way past the rate of inflation, especially in those sectors. So there's a productivity squeeze. So what happens? They have to suppress wages, so as to be able to maintain any kind of profitability. So as a result, what do you see? Well, you see, you know, in England we've got professors and junior doctors on strike. Here right. we have teachers on strike. France have nursing home workers and um, nursing right. care workers. That's never happened before in French history. All of a sudden, those people like that are going on strike. So that's where that's the revolt of the caring classes. That's where the labor struggles are concentrated.
0: And that's of course the hope of the future with these waves. I have mm. like two more questions. And mm. one is that you've just sort of addressed it, and that is, you know, that we all dream of this society that frees us from mm. mind-shattering work, so we can mm. pursue our passions and our dreams and care for each other. Mm. So we always thought, you know, that being freed from wage slavery. And drudged jobs, you know, would be great. But under capitalism, it's seen as a problem. Yes, and that, I know. yeah, and you say that, and it's mm. because, of course, here in the U.S., we have so few social supports. So, I guess the real question on that one is: Is it just a political question? Is it one that UBI, Universal Basic Income, could address? And within that,
1: mm. do you think
0: that would be a model or a band aid?
1: Well, I think it would be a I think it would be a transitional demand that makes sense to me. Uh, Marx somewhere actually suggested mm-hmm. that there's nothing wrong with reforms as long as they are reforms which ameliorate one problem but create another problem which can only be resolved by even more radical reforms. And if you know you do that continually, eventually you can get communism, he said. Um, you know, he is a bit optimistic perhaps. but But in a way you know, I'm I'm an anarchist. I don't want to create a status solution. But yeah. at the very least, I don't want to create a solution that makes the state bigger, a solution that makes the state smaller, you know, but at the same time ameliorates conditions and puts people in a more, makes people more free to challenge the system. It's hard for me to argue with. And that's what I like about UBI. I mean, I don't want a solution that's going to create more bullshit jobs, a, a guaranteed, you know, a job guarantee looks good. But as we know from history, it tends to create people painting rocks white or doing other things that, that um, you know, don't really necessarily need to be done. And and you also it requires a gigantic administration to run that. And it does seem often to be the people front with the sensibilities of the professional managerial class who prefer that kind of solution, whereas universal basic income is basically trying to divorce Compensation, I mean the radical versions obviously i 'm not for the sort of Elon Musk version or, you yeah. know. Um, but but um the radical version is about giving people enough that they everybody gets enough that they could subsist on, so after that it 's up to you, so the idea is to divorce work and compensation in a sense, if you exist you you know you, you deserve a livelihood. And you could call that freedom, right? You know, it's right. in the economic sphere, I get to decide how I want to contribute to society. And I think the very existence of bullshit jobs, and one of the things that's very important about the study that I did on bullshit jobs is, is how that's how miserable people are. You know? I mean, it really came through in these accounts. It's like, you know, in theory, you're getting something for nothing. You're sitting here being paid to do almost nothing in many cases, and people are just it breaks them down. There's depression, anxiety. These psychosomatic illnesses, terrible workplace toxic and you know behavior, and made even worse by the fact that people can't understand why they're justified in being so upset. Because you know, like, why am I complaining? If I complain to someone, they're just gonna say, "Hey, you're getting something for nothing, and you're you're whining." You know, but but it shows that our basic idea of human nature—that's inculcated in everybody by economics, uh, for example—that you know we're all trying to get the most reward for the least effort isn't actually true. People actually do want to contribute to the world in some way, so so that shows that you know if you give people basic income, it's not like they're just going to sit around and watch TV, which is you know one objection. The other objection, of course, is that well maybe they'll they will want to contribute to society, but they're going to do something stupid, so that you know society's going to fill with bad poets and you know annoying street musicians <laughs> and these street mimes everywhere and you know and um, um, people like developing their crank perpetual motion uh, devices and whatnot. So. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be some of that. But look, if 40% of people already think their jobs are completely pointless, how is it going to be worse than it already is? And at least they're going to be a lot happier doing that stuff than they are filling out forms all day.
0: And I like several (laughs) things about what you just said. First about, you know, sort of the nature of reform and transitional sort of, we we always Mm -hmm. try to have reforms that'll push up against the limits of the system, and then you Mm -hmm. have to ask for more, and you just said that in terms of UBI. I really like that explanation. Mm -hmm. But also, this other notion that we'll just be idle. And in fact humans oh, need to work they need to be yeah. productive in some way or engaged in some way and so this leads to this very last question we're almost out of time david oh, graeber but okay. that is you know is the idea of creating this caring society utopian and is it compatible with capitalism does it require no. revolution
1: it, it would require a revolution, but but I think that, I mean, what I always say is that you know capitalism is clearly going down the tubes. <laughs> you know, in fifty years, whatever we have isn't going to be capitalism. It could be something worse, right? You know, I mean, well, there's no guarantee it's going to be better. So it seems to me that if there's ever a time where where utop- an anti-utopian principle would be stupid. It's now. Either we come up with something actually better, or we're going to end up with something worse. It's one or the other.
0: Thank you so much for your time David Graeber the mm-hmm. book is bullshit jobs a theory just out by Simon and Schuster David Graeber has given us debt the first 5000 years
1: <laughs> <in> and, me? <laughs> and
0: so much more including occupy and lots of slogans and other books and he teaches anthropology at the London School of Economics thanks for joining us oh, on so Jacobin Radio and I'm Susie Weisman You've been listening to David Graeber talking about his new book bullshit jobs a theory this is jacobin radio and i'm suzy wiseman thanks for listening i'm your host Susie wiseman this is jacobin radio thanks to producer and director alan minsky and to jacobin radio's micah utrecht Bascar sunkara is the founder and editor of jacobin magazine and special thanks to robert brenner and thanks to you for listening i'm Susie wiseman